This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question, where we try to understand the complicated world we're living in and the crazy things that are happening by asking questions and by listening to people who really know what they're talking about. At times, it may lead to some pretty uncomfortable conversations, but stick with me, everyone. Let's all learn together. If you've gotten into the habit of scrolling past the nonstop breaking news alerts dominating your notifications, I get it. Headline fatigue is very real. With so many names and titles, it's almost impossible to keep them straight, especially when it comes to these latest impeachment hearings. That's why we're dedicating today's episode to all things impeachment. We'll talk about the arguments for and against and why the country is almost split down the middle. So to impeach or not to impeach? That is our next question. Today I'm talking with two legal experts who represent two different sides of the debate. First up, Neil Katiel. Neil was the acting Solicitor General under President Obama and drafted the Justice Department rules that guided the Mueller investigation. So yeah, when it comes to investigating government officials, Neil really knows what he's talking about. Neil, welcome. Great to be here. So we've got a lot to talk about, but hot off the presses, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland's testimony. You've called it every bit the bombshell we expected it to be. Why, in your view, was his testimony so particularly important? Because this was the guy that Trump pointed to to exonerate him. There have been a whole bunch of characters in this thing, Ambassador Taylor and Colonel Vindman and this and that. But there's been one guy throughout that President Trump has said is going to exonerate him, who even said, I hope testifies, but he won't be able to testify because he won't get a fair shake in the Congress and so on. 
Well, he did testify today, and before he walked in the door, he had a 20-page written statement. And that 20-page written statement is remarkable. It says, there's a whole section called, there was a quid pro quo, which is, of course, exactly what for many months we've been hearing as the talking point of President Trump and his followers, so much so that actually Senator Lindsey Graham, who's one of the president's closest allies in Congress, said last month, well, if there's a quid pro quo, then everything's different. Then I want to look at it. But otherwise, I don't see anything here. Well, today, Trump's own guy, the person that Trump nominated to be the ambassador to the European Union and the guy who Trump took and put in control of Ukrainian Ukrainian matters, it said, yes, there was a quid pro quo. There's lots of other stuff, too. But that, to me, is, you know, incredibly significant. That's the high watermark of the Trump defense. Before we talk about this testimony some more, were you surprised Well, I wasn't surprised in the sense of a couple of things have happened recently. One is you've had Roger Stone get convicted, essentially, for obstructing justice in a congressional investigation. So, you know, I don't think anyone could have seen that. You know, if you're Sondland last weekend and you're watching that conviction and thinking to yourself, boy, I've already been accused by at least one member of the House Intelligence Committee for committing perjury. Um, And now all these people are coming forward and saying stuff that I didn't say in my earlier statements. Yeah, I'm in trouble. So, for example, you know, he said he was supposed to detail his conversations with the president about Ukraine in his earlier deposition on October 8th. There's not a word about this phone conversation that he had with President Trump on July 26th. And is that the one in the restaurant? Exactly. On an un- unsecured line, exactly. like on a mobile phone, right, which is a, so random. And that's just random. It's a total security threat. I mean, look, I mean, when I was in the government, I wouldn't even talk on my home line at home landline um, because, you know, we were always worried about interception and the idea that you would be able to just sit in a restaurant in Kiev of all places and not just on a on a hard line, but on a cell phone and talking not just to any government official, but the president of the United States is baffling. What's even more baffling, of course, Katie, is that he forgot about the conversation. Like he just mysteriously never mentioned it to the investigators. So do you think he came forward or came clean to save his own hide, basically? I mean, you couldn't watch any one minute of the hearing today and think anything else. This was a guy who was bent on self-preservation. In his opening statement, he said he worked with Rudy Giuliani at the express direction of President Trump on matters involving Ukraine. So it was almost as if Rudy Giuliani was conducting a shadow government here, right? Well, he was conducting a shadow you know, a government, but at the president's request. So right. you know, that's what you know, Sondland also said. So it wasn't as if this was a circumstance in which it was some rogue private attorney for President Trump who was conducting Ukrainian foreign policy. So can you conduct a shadow government at the president's behest? Or <laughs> evidently, it's like a uh, secondary government uh, or something, Evidently, right? that's very legal and very cool to Trump. But uh, I think in the real world, of course, presidents don't do such things. Um, it's an incredibly damaging and dangerous. And, you know, the reason why, Katie, I wrote this book, Impeach, is basically to make sure that everyone doesn't focus on these little twists and turns every day in the story of, you know, what Sondland said one day or what Giuliani said another day. There's like a one central narrative, and it's actually one that the Republicans and President Trump doesn't disagree with. And that central narrative, which comes out in that July 25th transcript, uh, in which the president himself released between hi- a conversation between him and the president of Ukraine is the president of Ukraine 
is wanting this aid, this military aid. And President Trump says, well, wait, though, I need a favor first. And that is the idea that uh, a president or, you know, our nation's most powerful official would use congressionally appropriated aid or a White House meeting in order to advance his own political ends. Um, There's nothing, I think, that is a better definition of what is an impeachable offense. Well, let me, yeah, so help us understand this as as the expert you are, Professor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, what laws, were there actual laws that were broken? Even if you think it's grossly inappropriate or just obnoxious or weird or self-serving, was there an actual law broken here? Yes, but that's actually not the question when you think about impeachment. So there are constitution and this, you know, there's a whole chapter about this in, in my book that the, the, our constitution says you impeach for what are called high crimes and misdemeanors. And that's a phrase of art the founders used not to mean just actual crimes, but the, the core thing that our founders are getting at is, is there an abuse of government power? And our founders didn't actually even want to put impeachment in the Constitution. Many of them didn't. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and ultimately what won the day was a series of founders, Alexander Hamilton and others, who said, well, what if a president, a sitting president, goes and tries to get help from a foreign government to win an election? That's their example of impeachment. Now, at the time, that's not criminal. It is now, actually, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But at the time, there was no statute, again, a criminal statute on bribery and the like. But everyone understood that to be a high crime and misdemeanor. Today, we actually do have statutes that prohibit bribery. And this is, again, a textbook definition of that. It's when did that come about? The bribery statutes, I think, have been around more than 100 years. Um, mm-hmm. And so they've been, they've been around for a long time. And what they do is they, pr- they criminalize asking for a thing of value in order to get a certain government act. And that's so this exactly is f- a, a bribery of any government or p- conducted by any government official, including e- the president? Exactly. So if you seek a bribe, if you're the president and say, and the president says, hey, Katie, you know, that ambassadorship, great. You know, if you'll donate, you know, $100,000 to my campaign, um, I will make you ambassador. That is him seeking a thing of value, $100,000 from you, in exchange for an official act, namely your ambassadorship. And here, he did the same thing. Hey, Ukraine, I'll give you this money um, that Congress has appropriated, but you got to do a favor for me first, though. Neil, isn't it an implicit understanding that big donors become ambassadors? I mean, isn't that kind of an unspoken bribe? Well, there's a there's a dance, a complicated dance that's done. If you do it in as literally quid pro quo in exchange, it's it's illegal. But if you do it as the way many people do. Thank and, and you, you know, wink, wink. <laughs> I really appreciate it. There might <laughs> well, be something really great for you if I get elected. Yeah, sometimes wink, winks will get to the point of being actually criminal. But for that most part, what you have is fairly sophisticated actors in this kind of wealthy ambassadorial circle of which looks like Sondland traveled in donating a million dollars. Right. And I'm not suggesting at all that, you know, that kind of thing happens. You know, someone donates a lot and some good plum job comes along for them later. That's very different than this, which is the president himself saying, hey, if you want the foreign aid, you know what you got to do. You got to go investigate my chief political rival. Why don't you think the president pleaded ignorance instead of claiming this call was perfect why wouldn't he just say you know i didn't think this was a problem 
Well, I mean, only he can answer that question, but, but one point of speculation is this. That call took place on July 25th. One day before, on July 24th, something pretty significant happened. Robert Mueller, who had been investigating the president for almost two years, testified in Congress. And I would say didn't testify particularly clearly. Um, there was uh, a lot of garble and so on. And the president, I think, you know, and you just, it comes across even in this fake transcript. It's not a full transcript. We don't know exactly what was said, but even just what they released, it really shows kind of a, a person who has no appreciation for the rule of law. I mean, we've seen this in other ways, but I think on that day in particular, he was really feeling it. Explain, though, why you think, you know, if, if Mueller was sort of garbled and, and didn't seem to come down that hard on the president, right? Why would he have done this? Why would the president have done yeah, this? Yeah, because at that moment in time, because it seemed to me that Mueller was sort of wishy-washy, as everyone said. Yeah, so because of that, I think the president felt like, okay, I can do, I can do this kind of oh, stuff and get away with it. Oh, he felt empowered by Mueller. Exactly, I can do this kind of stuff. I mean, Trump's instincts all along have been pretty much to not respect the rule of law, to not respect institutions that push back against them, to call them never Trumpers or whatever. Uh, it's you know labels he wants to use. So that's always been his kind of. M.O., but I think on that day in particular, he must have felt particularly empowered. You know, I, it was interesting that Sondland said that he really wanted the investigation to be announced almost more than he wanted the investigation to take place, which is pretty significant. He wanted to do the damage in kind of a whisper campaign almost against Joe Biden as he was as he runs for president and against Hunter Biden and suggests this sort of scandal. Katie, I'm so glad you brought that up because to me that was one of the most important things in today's testimony. Ambassador Sondland said that what Trump wanted was the announcement of an investigation by the Ukrainians, not them actually doing it. Now, you know, I've been in law enforcement in two different administrations. The idea that you're, if you're conducting a criminal investigation, you announce it? Of course not. That's the last thing you do because you want to do all the interviewing and all the confidential inquiries first in order to catch people in perjury and things like that. And so, you know, there, the president has been saying this is about corruption. This is why he did this, corruption in general. But when drilled down and asked and people say, well, did you ever care about corruption in any other country? There's 194 other countries. Did you ever? No. Ukraine. And with respect to Ukraine, did you ever care about any other kind of corruption besides this one thing affecting Vice President Biden? No. At some point, this starts to smell. It's not a particularly powerful story. Let's talk about, just because I, I want this to be impeachment 101 for people, yeah. um, but before we talk about sort of the nuts and bolts of the process, I think that even the suggestion of impropriety by Hunter Biden, uh, you know, uh, as part of this Ukrainian oil company, Burisma. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's something that, that President Trump is very good at sort of putting things out in the ether and kind of letting it kind of enter people's psyches. Yeah. In layman's terms, is there any there there, Neil, with Hunter Biden? Well, I Cause think— Because it does, it does sound a little— Funky. Yeah, no. no, I mean, in the book, I say, you know, I have a whole section about did Hunter Biden do something wrong? 
I think he did something, you know, morally wrong, not legally wrong, but the idea that you take a job because of who your dad is, I have a problem with that. Um, so it's uh, a little sketchy in your It's review. a little sketchy. I don't think it means that you go and launch some secret investigation and hold up congressionally appropriated aid and do all the things that the president did. That's, you know, even if Biden did something that was, let's say, criminal, which I don't think anyone agrees that there there was that on the part of the son. And mm-hmm. indeed, even Trump's own witness, Volcker, yesterday testified that I've known Biden for 24 years and he would never do something that would compromise his values or this nation's interests. So, you know, but even if you put all that aside and said, OK, Trump's right, there was something really bad that was done here. That would never justify you going and deputizing your private attorney to Rudy go Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani to go to another country and to threaten and hold up military aid that our taxpayer dollars have appropriated for the nation's interest. And I mean, that Ukraine really needs, right, exactly. to protect itself from guess who? Russia. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up because again, Trump's witness yesterday, Ambassador Volker, said exactly that. Said, look. I'm opposed to the idea of holding up this aid. This aid is really important at countering Russian aggression in the region. So uh, once again, we see this thing in which the president is just outdoing favors for Russia. Now, I don't know that that motivated him here. It's probably he had more personal motivations here in terms of a political agenda. But it does demonstrate the stakes here in which you have a president who cares more about himself who cares more about his reelection than what uh, the taxpayers and Congress have appropriated in the nation's interest. We're going to take a quick break. We'll have more from Neil Katiel when we come back. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox but a feeling like (sighs) being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Sondland said also in his testimony, everyone was in the loop, referring to senior administration officials, including Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, Vice President Mike Pence, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Um, So 
have they been implicated and what might the repercussions be for them? I mean, these guys aren't going to be impeached. What will happen to them? Anything? Uh, they, I do think things will happen to them. So Sondland's testimony today really was a kind of detonation that uh, he, he basically took the view, look, if I'm going down, I'm taking a lot of other people with me. Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, Bolton, the former national security advisor, um, you know, Pompeo, the secretary of state, uh, you know, and the list goes on and well, on. Bolton quit sort of. And and didn't he direct the White House lawyers to be notified about this? I mean, he clearly felt uncomfortable with this, correct? That's what the reporting says. But, you know, I think one of the hard things about this, Katie, is we don't know because the president has gagged every one of these people from coming forward and telling the truth to the Congress. Can he He's, do that? I mean, can't they subpoena these folks? They can, but it's going to take some time in the courts. And I think the Democrats have taken the view, which I actually agree with, is they got enough evidence now to impeach. And do we want to delay things more and more in the courts? Now, there's going to be a decision coming down in a few days by the D.C. court on some privilege issues, and it may open the door for Bolton to testify in his own. And I think it's notable that a lot of the uh, testimony we've heard over the last week, like from Colonel Vindman or Ambassador Yanovovich um, and people like that, are all folks who've come forward despite the president's gag order and said, I'm just going to tell the truth. And Do you, you know, think John Bolton listen. might do that too? I think he might. Uh, you know, Even I before think before the courts decide? I do. I mean, at the end of the day, Bolton is a lawyer. Um, and, you know, he's far more conservative than, than I am. But I do think that in, you know, deep in his heart is a respect for the kind of common calling we have as a profession. The idea that, you know, when you're a witness to important events, um, you tell them to the American people and let the chips fall where they may. Meanwhile, Ambassador Sondland said he never heard directly from President Trump that the military aid was conditioned on an announcement of investigation, saying that assumption was his own personal guess. So is that enough? Well, I think... I mean, if he never heard those exact words, hey, if this doesn't happen, there won't be foreign aid, and P.S., that White House visit will be canceled. If this were the case, if the case against President Trump was built all around the Sondland testimony, I think it certainly wouldn't be enough. The problem for Trump is Sondland is not the is not the prosecution witness. He's the defense witness. So he's the best story Trump has got. And all he's got is, well, the president directly say this, but everyone knew and everyone was in the loop on exactly what was going on. What do you the think? What do you think President Trump was thinking when he watched this? If he watched it, even though he claims he wasn't watching it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that there's a way anyone can watch this. Uh, you know, if you're a, if you're the president and watch this being said about you without having a deep pit in your stomach. And I think that's why we see the more and more lashing out by this president. You know, um, but at some point he's going to have to face the facts, and the facts are not based on Sondland's testimony alone, but on that July 25th transcript in which the quid pro quo is right there. It's not, you know, I need a favor from you, though. That's what the president says. And so, you know, there isn't really a way for him to walk away from it. Will this really matter, though, Neil? That's the question. Let's talk short term and long term. Short term being uh, if he is impeached, a trial in the Senate. Is there anything that we heard today that mo might move the needle for Republican senators to vote to convict President Trump or for some of them to 
basically abandoned the president. I think so far there are only two. I do think uh, that as senators go and look at the evidence and ask themselves, you know, the question that I put in my book, which is, you know, just flip the parties around, pretend this is what we do with law students in their first year. You say, you know, everyone's got certain biases when they walk in and you say, well, just pretend you're representing the defendant instead of the plaintiff if you are plaintiff focused and vice versa. I think the same thing has to be put to the senators. And they've never actually been asked this simple question, which is, you know, if the shoe's on the other foot, if it's President Obama who went and got secret help from a foreign government or tried to do so and held up congressionally appropriated aid or doled out White House meetings to countries that investigated his uh, political rivals, would you sit by and say, oh, yeah, that's cool. He can be president. I just don't think that, you know, a senator could look at herself or himself in the mirror and say, yeah, that's the kind of government I want. And I know there are so many Americans who have been dispirited over the last three years as Congress has looked the other way on this and that. But we've never actually forced them to go and cast that vote. And here it'll be one of the most solemn votes they'll ever cast in their lives, one of the solemn things they ever do. And can they really do that? I don't know. Um, But I have faith that um, in the Senate and that they will study this, think about it, ask the question that I just asked, what if the shoe were on the other foot, and reach the right judgment. I don't mean to be cynical, but politics seems to be the number one priority for many of these Republican senators. So why do you believe that suddenly they'll have an epiphany and uh, a sort of a a crisis of confidence in the president and their consciences will emerge at this moment in time? Well, I have to think uh, two things. One is I have to think when you go into public office, you know, there are a lot of ways to make money or get power. I think you do it for some sense of the public good. And so, um, you know, I I think... I think at first you do, and then it's all about staying in power, don't you? But maybe, but even if so... Um, the idea of associating yourself with this, with this kind of lawlessness, I don't know makes for very good politics um, in, in the long term. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing this election after election, 2018, the elections just, you know, last week, you know, again and again, the president is losing. And I do think one of the reasons he's losing is because of this corrosive view about the law. So even if the Senate does not vote to convict, you think he there will be hell to pay in November of 2020 for President Trump? Oh my, yes. I mean, look, I, I you know, I understand there's a lot of people out there who say we should have defeat President Trump at the ballot box and not impeach and remove. And I, I think, look, I think that you know, with this kind of record, there's no way President Trump could be reelected. Um, you know, so, but at the end of the day, I think. We're setting something here that's far bigger than just the next election, which, of course, has you know, momentous stakes. But we're setting the ground rules for what our American experiment is all about, what our democracy means. And if we don't do this, if we say a president can go and in secret try and hold up foreign aid to investigate his chief rivals and, you know, what are we saying about our election system? But Neil, a new NPR PBS NewsHour poll found that while most Americans are paying attention to these hearings, less than a third say, or you know, around a third say their minds could be changed. So there are a lot of people who say, we don't care. 
whatever happens, it's a witch hunt. You know, they've bought the president's talking points. And by the way, I watched Sean Hannity last night, and it's almost as if we live in two different countries or they're two different stories. If you have a steady diet of Fox News, you have a very different opinion about what's going on in Washington right now. Yeah, no, look, I, I, my argument is not that Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram are going to change their minds. You know, they've got a certain, you know, set of incentives to say the things that they say. But, but I'm talking I do, about Fox viewers. Yeah, and I do have more faith in, in those viewers and more generally the viewers across the American public and listeners and, and so on. I, I'm not ready to give up on the idea that we live in such two different countries that there is no truth anymore or that we shouldn't ask these questions or we throw in the towel because we're worried about a you know splintered hyperpartisan environment i mean at the end of the day every time america has transcended that we transcended it in 1776 and 1787 and 1866 and 1937 and the civil rights movement marriage equality so many other times people have said Katie, the kind of stuff you're saying, and, you know, I know you're just voicing, you know, a lot of the frustrations of a lot of people and views of a lot of people, but there's also this other counter tradition in American history. You know, in the book, I talk about the Andrew Johnson impeachment, and, uh, you know, Johnson was a terrible president and racist and, and so on, but he was impeached not for that. He was impeached for a violation of the Tenure of Office Act, the technical violation, and it was a really close vote in the Senate. And Senator Ross, who hated, uh, Senator Ross was from uh, uh, Kansas, and uh, he hated President Johnson, but nonetheless cast the impeachment vote, the deciding vote, the other way to not impeach because he said, that's not the right thing to do. It may be the right thing to do for my party, but it's not the right thing to do for the country. And time and again, we've seen examples of that. And um, we won't know unless we try. And, um, you know, that's I, I'm proud that to see our Congress trying and to force some attention by this administration to the rule of law. Let me ask you um, if you could break it down. How many articles of impeachment are there uh, right now? And, and, you know, how is this different from a criminal trial? Yeah. So the main differences are that it, it's not, of course, about crimes. So so that's the first thing. Right. It's about really, is there an abuse of power by right. the president? Is the president putting his nation, his personal interests above those of the nation? That's really, I think, the best definition of what a high crime and misdemeanor is. And that can come in assorted shapes and forms. Exactly. And so here, I think they're basically kind of three buckets that um, of offenses when we think about Ukraine. And, you know, there may be others involving the Mueller investigation and so on. I personally don't think Congress should get into all of that here. But, you know, right, because be there's some indication that he might have lied on his questionnaire. Exactly. The, the House General Counsel this week in the D.C. court said they believe that there may be evidence that the president lied to Mueller and that, of course, is itself a criminal offense. So there may be other things going on. We'll have to see. Um, in terms of the process, there is a big difference. I mean, the House does what's called impeachment, which is like the formal indictment uh, of the president, like saying he did something wrong. And that is just by a majority vote. 
And that's kind of like a grand jury in the criminal context. And then you've got, if the House impeaches, then it goes to the Senate for the punishment phase and, uh, and the kind of trial about what, you know, what, what the president did and is it you know, a convictable offense. Um, and there it's a two-thirds vote of the Senate to convict. And unlike a criminal trial in which it's a jury of 12 peers who don't have any prejudices about the case, this is decided by 100 senators, many of whom have already said certain things about their view of the case. So it is quite different in that sense. It's a mix of a legal proceeding and a political proceeding. Would President Trump ever be asked to go to the Senate to testify? Oh, absolutely. And, and would he be compelled to? Uh, I, I think you can't formally compel him in the sense of uh, you, you know, attach criminal sanctions to him, but you can create an adverse inference. You can say, look, Mr. President, if you don't come forward and tell the truth, we'll take that as an admission that these accusations against you and these articles of impeachment are accurate. And you had asked before about what that case would look like. What are those articles of impeachment? And it seems to me Article 1 is kind of abuse of power. The president saying... I am going to cut off congressionally appropriated aid, aid that our taxpayers approved, to another country to benefit myself. Count number two is bribery. The idea that we were talking about earlier, seeking something of value for yourself in order to exchange, in order for the uh, performance of an official act. And it would be called bribery in Absolutely. This case? And indeed, one, one of the interesting things, Katie, is that the Constitution actually says there are, defines impeachable offenses as treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It's actually in the Constitution itself as one of the two things our founders said was impeachable. And cited by Alexander Hamilton, as you said earlier, about a foreign nation. Exactly. Is that in the Constitution too? Well, th what's in the Constitution is just the word bribery. Um, no, the foreign nation, what you mentioned that Alexander Hamilton used as an example. So it's an example of what is an impeachable offense, but itself is not in the text of the Constitution. Like much of the Constitution, they used more capacious words like other high crimes and misdemeanors. And then we have methods to try and understand what those words are. Here are and the in, Federalist in some of Papers. And in, in some of Hamilton's writings. Exactly. So Hamilton's writings in the Federalist Papers, indeed Federalist 68, I think, is the critical one, um, make, make this argument about foreign uh, interference. You sure it's not 67? I'm just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then the last article of impeachment, and I think today we saw a lot of evidence of this, is obstruction of justice. The idea that the president is gagging all these witnesses from coming forward. He's saying no documents can come. And we started this interview, Katie, with you asking about the Ambassador Sondland testimony and its significance. And we've talked a lot about the substantive significance, like what did Sondland say about Trump and Giuliani and so on. But there was a procedural significance to what he said today, which is really important. He said, and again, this is Trump's guy, he's saying the president is acting wrongly by not allowing me to look at my emails, not provide them to you, not provide my call records. He's preventing me from all of this, and that's preventing the American people from learning the truth. And that is quintessential obstruction, obstruction of, of justice. justice. And, and what could happen to Rudy Giuliani? I'm just curious. Oh, heavens me, I would not want to be. <laughs> I mean, really? No, I, seriously, under any if, if in but. fact, he did all the things he's being accused of doing yeah. in the course of these hearings and by various witnesses. 
what will happen to him? Well, so first of all, it's not just what he's being accused of in the hearings, which are about, you know, this part of Ukraine and Burisma and all that. There's a separate criminal investigation in the Southern District of New York, his former office that he used to head about whether or not he committed various crimes, whether it's, you know, we don't know exactly what they are. Um, But, you know, so he's facing legal liability there separately. Now he's got a bunch to worry about here um, with respect to the Ukrainian foreign aid scandal and so on. And, you know, I think that there's a deep question here whether Giuliani is going to say, oh, I did this all on my own. Trump wasn't involved, hoping perhaps for a pardon or something like that. Or he's going to say, hey, I wasn't a rogue agent here. I was doing all of this at the president's behest, which uh, Mr. Sondland today, I think, suggested was the truth. And is is Roger Stone going to be pardoned? Who knows? Um, I mean, I would don't think, you think so? I would think that a president, when there's that mountain of evidence from his own Justice Department to convict Roger Stone, any decent president could not impeach, uh, could not uh, pardon Roger Stone. But this is a president who pardoned Joe Arpaio, who pardoned Dinesh D'Souza, who pardoned three war criminals just last week against the advice of his own Defense Department. So anything goes with respect to this guy and his abuse of the pardon power. You made the case that President Trump's efforts to hinder the House investigation is as much of a threat to the rule of law as the case against him and that it, quote, strikes at the heart of American democracy. Explain that. Yeah, so I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times last week which said, look, we're going to obviously all focus on these witnesses and what what happened with respect to Ukraine. But there is a kind of more fundamental thing. And, you know, I saw it in two different tours in the government, which is when the Congress of the United States asks you, how are you doing your job? Why did you take certain actions and the like? You know, that's a sovereign and solemn obligation for you to go and explain what you did to the people. Uh, And this president has thumbed his nose at Congress, has said it's so illegitimate that he won't even bother turning over a single piece of paper or a single witness. Um, And again, I ask, go back to that kind of yardstick rule, shoe on the other foot. If this were a Democratic president, how would the Republican senators and congresswomen and men feel? about someone who stymied that. I mean, even at the worst, you know, and Eric Holder was accused of, you know, in Fast and Furious of various things, but he turned over thousands and thousands of pages of material. That was the only time President Obama invoked executive privilege in his time in office. This president, you know, invokes it kind of like candy, you know, whenever, and does it wantonly. Um, And, uh, you know, you'd have to go back to Nixon to someone who did it with any frequency approaching, approaching this president. But this president has, you know, done that and, and squared it many, many times over. Do you see any way the impeachment hearings, Neil, could help the president, could galvanize his base, and that people might buy in the idea that he's being unfairly targeted? And nope, they these people never thought his election was legitimate, yada, yada, yada. I think that's, Katie, with all respect, the wrong question. I don't think we can do this because of politics. I think we have to do this, and and I think this is where the Congress, uh, the House is is moving, because there is no other option. When you have a president 
who betrays the nation's interest and tries to do it in secret and then gets caught and then doesn't even admit to it and says he'd do it again, he'd do it with China. You've got a president who's a fundamental existential threat to the rule of law, to everything the country is built on. And if you lose elections over it, so be it. Lose the election because there's something far greater at stake here, which is the operation and soul of American democracy. You're a purist, but I I would say that there are plenty of Democrats in the House who really weighed the political ramifications of this pretty long and hard, Neil. Sure. No, I am not. I'm not denying any of that. And, you know, it may be that it's not bad politics for them or good politics or whatever. I'm just saying, you know, as as some things have to rise above politics. Absolutely. And as your listeners think about, you know, how do we think about this question that we're about to embark in as a nation over the next two months? What should we do about the president? I think they have to ask, you know, do they really want a system in which a president can do this and put the politics aside, at least try to, it's, if nothing else, a thought experiment, because um, the shoe will be on the other foot. Life is long, and the country hopefully has many, many years ahead. And if we allow this president to do this, another president can do it, and that president may not be one that you politically agree with. I know I'm asking you to speculate, and that's something that current and former government officials hate to do. (laughs) Colin Powell used to always tell me, Katie, I will not speculate on that. But can you give us an idea of the timeline and what ultimately you think is going to happen, Neil? Sure. So um, I'm I'm not afraid to speculate here. So I I wrote a whole book that's about (laughs) this. Um, And uh, I think that by uh, the end of December, by December 23rd, uh, I suspect we'll have a vote in the House of Representatives. Merry Christmas. And I do think that the president will be impeached by the House of Representatives. It'll then go to a trial in the Senate. In January? In January. uh, You know, I think the Senate rules require kind of an immediate trial to move quickly. It require them to be, I think, in session six days a week. Um, and How it's long a, do you think the trial will last? You know, some senators, uh, Republican senators, have said it may be as long as six to eight weeks. Wow. I'm not sure that that's right. I think it's probably the House has already taken a lot of testimony, so I'm not sure that it will be that long. But I, again, I, I hope that it's a thorough, ser- serious trial that everyone can see exactly what happened. Um, because the president's story has been shifting while this has been going on in the House of Representatives and in the early stages in the investigation. I mean, first it was, I didn't do it. Then it was, it's all perfect and beautiful. Then it was, no, it's all hearsay. And, you know, there's no firsthand witnesses. Now that the firsthand witnesses have come forward, we're back to it's beautiful and perfect. Um, and I don't really know that guy, Sondland or whomever. So there's been a bunch of shifting stories. Um, and once it goes to trial in the Senate, I suspect that they're going to have to drill down and pick one. And at that point, I do think the eyes of the nation focus on the question. The eyes in the Senate, they look at themselves in the mirror and say, what's the right thing to do here? And I think that the president will be removed from office. You do. I do. Wow. So you think he'll be gone? I do. And Mike Pence will run for president? I, I don't know, but, you know, uh, you know, that very well may be, or maybe they have something else. Wow. Well, 
fasten your seatbelt. Do you ever wish that you had waited to write your book, Im- Impeach the Case Against Donald Trump, since there's so so much happened since you, I'm sure, handed this in? No, actually, the reverse. I mean, I wrote the book because I knew a lot was going to happen. I knew there were all these witnesses coming forward. And I, you know, one of the things that Trump does, and you actually started uh, today's session by talking about it, is the flood of information that happens. And it's so hard to separate the wheat from the chaff and remember what's important. And the book is just 150 pages, is just designed to say, here's the central narrative. And yes, there's going to be any number of details and people saying this and that and taking pot shots at each other. But here's the central narrative. That central narrative is not going to change. Like, you know, I've done, I've argued 39 cases at the Supreme Court and done hundreds of other cases. You know when a case and the basics architecture of the case is done. That basic architecture of the case is done now. And that's what the book lays out. And go back to those three articles of impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors in the Constitution, abuse of power, bribery. And obstruction of justice. Neil Katiel. Neil, thanks so much for helping us understand all this and make some sense of it. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Not everyone agrees with Neil Katiel. Up next, we're going to have a conversation with a vocal critic of the impeachment inquiry, former independent counsel Robert Ray. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Robert Ray made a name for himself leading the Whitewater investigation as the former head of the Office of the Independent Counsel. He recently wrote a piece for Time magazine arguing that while President Trump may have acted inappropriately, his actions do not meet the Constitution's strict requirements for impeachment, which say that treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors need to be proven in order to remove a president from office. Robert Ray, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's Appreciate a pleasure. It. Nice to be with you. So your predecessor as independent counsel, Ken Starr, described today's testimony as, quote, one of those bombshell days, and said that, quote, things do not look good for the president substantively. 
What do you think, Bob? Well, I don't agree with that. Um, I, I've dealt with media days throughout this saga for more than the past two months where every day is another bombshell day. So I, I don't think there was really anything that I heard today that was that much of a surprise and what I had anticipated that we would hear. His testimony, though, did confirm a quid pro quo, right? Well, let's be careful about that. Okay. Because, you know, first of all, I'm, uh, you know, the, the hooray Henrys who all want to talk about quid pro quo as if they seem to understand what bribery is. Let's just slow down a second. Okay. Bribery is something like the following. Whoever, being a public official, corruptly demands or seeks personally in return for the performance of an official act is guilty of a crime. And the in return for language essentially is what people understand to be the quid pro quo requirement of a bribery offense. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we talk about and what much of the discussion has been about. I mean, for example, if there's an exchange of a quid pro quo involving foreign assistance generally and the linkage is over something as benign as we want a particular com a country to do more with regard to internally prosecuting um, or investigating corruption. Nobody would ever contend that that kind of an exchange is something that the law is prepared to recognize as illegal. But is, doesn't it change when it's a political rival, Bob, when it's specifically about Joe Biden and his son and, and, and according to Sondland? Uh, Although that's not what Ambassador Sondland testified to today. What his understanding was is that it was Burisma and the origins of the 2016 election interference. He only came to learn, I, I think he said, in, not until after the transcript of the call was released between President Zelensky and President Trump that, uh, you know, in, in his mind, he then came to a presumption that there was a linkage between uh, the two involving specifically the Bidens. So, you know, look, I think much of how you would view this is colored by whether or not you think there's any merit to an investigation of the Bidens, first. Second, I think it's colored by what your view is about whether or not such an investigation is of personal benefit to the president that would be sufficient to um, uh, make out a crime. The Democrats have tried that on for size. They first contended that that was an illegal foreign campaign contribution. Well, that's an interesting legal theory, but it runs up against the fact that the Justice Department, apparently through the criminal division, after consultation with the public integrity section, said, listen, that's not a thing of value that the law is prepared to recognize as a, uh, a campaign contribution that would be of personal benefit to the president of the United States. You mean, you mean in an investigation into right. Hunter Biden and Burisma? Right. Look, and you know, uh, the notion that uh, a public official is, uh, as a result of running for office or being a candidate, immune from uh, an investigation is in my judgment, anathema, it's inconsistent with, with our past history, and it's even inconsistent with my own past history. I conducted an investigation of Hillary Clinton, who was then, at the time, while I was serving as independent counsel, being investigated in connection with a whole slew of investigations, Whitewater, the travel office, FBI files, a number of things, while she was a candidate for office for the United States Senate in New York. So are you suggesting that Joe Biden uh, 
did something wrong here. And, I don't know. And, and, and it was, it, in, in your estimation, it's worthy of an investigation? I don't know. I mean, apparently the attorney general has thought at least so. Uh, that matter has been referred among a number of different specific issues to John Durham, who is the currently serving U.S. attorney in the District of Connecticut. He enjoys a bipartisan repu- uh, reputation as a, and a fine one, as a, a bipartisan, nonpartisan uh, prosecutor, career prosecutor. Uh, I don't know whether that investigation has any merit or not. I, I imagine he'll figure it out one way or another. That's why we have investigations, to find out. I, I, I wonder if you believe that Ambassador Sondland's claim that the president was seemed to be more interested in the announcement of an investigation rather than the investigation itself might sort of counter this assessment that it wouldn't he wouldn't stand to gain well, from that investigation. Ambassador Sondland made very clear, although that was completely overlooked in the testimony today, that the primary reason to ask for a public announcement was to fix their position publicly so they couldn't walk back the fact that they were committed to rooting out corruption. Mm-hmm. I think that's separate and apart from whether or not you think that's also of personal benefit to the president because of the fact that it would have potentially have an impact on an election. Everything has an impact on an election. The question is whether there is anything inappropriate about that ask. And I have already commented publicly, and I think um, this is where I do agree with Ken Starr. I do think it was an error in judgment not to have done this through the usual channels. Why? Because the usual channels provide you with insulation in the ordinary you know, affairs of the country where people don't second guess your political motivations. And so one of the reasons that you'd go to the FBI and the Justice Department and also submit what there's already a treaty process to allow, a, a request to the Ukrainian government through official channels for what's referred to as the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. That's the kind of appropriate way in which you would be seeking, in a sensitive area, assistance with an investigation. So I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that the president does something directly, that if he did indirectly through usual channels, it certainly would be entirely appropriate. But now all of a sudden, it's illegal. You can argue about a lack of judgment and whether or not it would have been better practice and a better idea not to have had what amounts to um, a second channel through Rudy Giuliani to try to accomplish this end. But I'm not sure that I would jump to the conclusion that the end in itself was inappropriate. I think the means uh, are, are subject to question, but that doesn't mean that the means were illegal. But having said that, I mean, it was, in your view, an error in judgment, but does not necessarily qualify for as a high crime or misdemeanor. I don't think it qualifies as bribery either. I don't think it so, Im- I don't think it involves extortion because I don't think there was sufficient pressure applied. What about abuse of power? Well, abuse of power is an interesting concept and I, I know you've talked to, uh, to Neil, Neil about Neil that. About that. I, I do not think that abuse of power untethered from the constitutional language which requires that it be treason, bribery or other high crime and misdemeanor is sufficient. I know there's reasonable disagreement of opinion among legal scholars about that. I think, I mean, I've read a lot of books. I've considered the question of impeachment going all, by, all the way back to Watergate and historically even before. Um, I think the better, more considered view, and by the way, this was Neil Katyal's view 
and Akhil Lamar and a number of other people when they were trying on for size the question of the Clinton impeachment, I do not think abuse of power on its own is a sufficient basis to remove a president from office. I think it has to be both. I think the lesson of the Clinton impeachment was very few people were arguing over whether or not the president had committed obstruction of justice or perjury. The only question was whether or not those crimes were sufficient to rise to the level of abuse of his office, abuse of his oath of office. And I think the considered judgment of the Senate following a trial was, you know what, Um, there's a problem here, but it's not sufficient to remove the president from office because he didn't abuse his office. Mm -hmm. This one um, you know, I sort of step back and, and just look at it. And, and the Nixon case is, of course, entirely different because there I think it was clearly both. It was not only that obstruction of justice was committed, but it was committed in such a way that undermined the president's oath of office to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And there was a slush fund in the White House with cash coming out of a safe in order to pay off witnesses to alter testimony in connection with an all- ongoing criminal investigation that the president orchestrated and he was on tape directing it. I mean, everybody can understand and appreciate that that's not only a crime, but it's also a problem for a president to be involved in. I don't think there's anything like that here. I mean, are we seriously, and I'm asking the American people this, are we seriously going to impeach a president based upon today's testimony about the announcement of an investigation tied to a meeting at the White House? I, I, I really think— Well, what about tied to foreign aid? Well— Let's start with where they started today, because the only thing Sondland was able to say for Ambassador Sondland was able to say for sure is that the link that he saw was with a meeting at the White House. Despite what you hear in much of the media, a meeting at the White House as recently as the Supreme Court's decision involving Governor McDonald is not an official act under the bribery law. So that can't be the predicate for a bribery offense. And I believe Adam Schiff recognizes this because all before these hearings even started, he was already saying, you know, we don't have to prove the elements of a bribery offense like a prosecutor would. Bribery, it only has to be as the founders understood it. Well, okay, fair enough. But bribery is mentioned. And the founders did put in place a Congress which was capable of passing laws. And among the other laws that the Congress ultimately passed was the federal bribery statute. So there's no bribery with regard to a meeting in the White House. Don't believe me but what with about, regard to that. That's what the Supreme Court says. So that's what the a, law. what about foreign aid? Well, I mean, maybe Sondland didn't say that he saw no connection, but a lot of the other witnesses have well, said that and more witnesses are to come. Well, he says So that if in if in fact someone says uh, there was an undeniable link between an investigation of Hunter Biden and the delivery of foreign aid to Ukraine, would that constitute bribery? Well, no one is going to say that. And more importantly, I'm not really interested in what other people have to say. This is not an impeachment of an administration. This is, after all, the impeachment of the president of the United States. It so you're saying if Rudy said that. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. The question is, what does the president think? And today, you know, again, something skipped over, you know, largely. The president was asked directly by Ambassador Sunland in no uncertain terms and emphatically, because I think he was exasperated more than anything else, Mr. President, what do you want? And the answer was, I don't want anything from President Zelensky. I want him to do what it is he ran on. And I, I, and I don't want any quid pro quos. I'm not asking him for anything. I'm asking him to do what he said he was going to do. So look, I, I do not think that investigations generally 
including ones conducted overseas, and including ones conducted overseas of United States nationals, which, by the way, is something that we do do. Um, I have represented clients that have been on the receiving end of that, so I know. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's, you know, that's part of what investigations are all about. I do not think that that notion, and specifically what you're suggesting, which is the personal benefit to the president of a politically motivated investigation of the Bidens, are mutually exclusive. I mean, the, the, the sense in the, in, the, in, the, in the country right now is it, it's either a legitimate investigation or it's this thing involving the Bidens, Burisma, and corruption in the Ukraine. And the one is unlawful. It's a foreign campaign contribution, and it's the basis of a quid pro quo. And the other one is entirely appropriate. I don't think th life doesn't work that way. They are, not, they are not mutually exclusive. There is space enough for there to be, again, depending on how, what your view is about whether or not either Hunter Biden and or his, his father, the then vice president, did anything wrong. And again, I'm not suggesting he did or he didn't. I don't know. That's why we have investigations to find out. And in fact, we are having one right now. That's what's going on. So you basically don't believe when it comes to the specific articles of impeachment that Neil identified, abuse of power, bribery, and obstruction of justice, that you can check off any of those? And if not, why not obstruction of justice, Bob, if in fact President Trump is prohibiting many people from testifying in, in, in the House hearings? Well, that's a process, Val, and I guess ultimately you know, the American people will decide whether they think that's significant well, enough. Well, what do you think? I don't think so. I, I, and I think, you know, look, if there are legitimate reasons and bases to object to cooperating with the investigation that include the assertion of presidential or executive privilege, uh, I know that they tried this in the Nixon impeachment. It wasn't particularly persuasive, nor was it, frankly, in the, in the Clinton impeachment. Um, that, that's a process argument and dispute between the branches of government. To equate that with obstruction of justice seems to me to be a bridge too far. Um, there are legitimate reasons why you would object to uh, subpoena compliance both for documents and for witnesses to protect the office of the president, not the president, you know, Donald Trump personally himself, not only for this administration, for administrations in the future. Uh, that has been consistently the position of the White House, not again, not just with regard to this administration, but for administrations going back at least as far as President Eisenhower. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, an attempt to try to make that argument, you know, Adam Schiff's uh, typical approach to this has been every time the White House objects to providing us with a document or a witness, we're going to just add that as another article of impeachment under obstruction. Uh, it doesn't wash with me. I don't think it will wash with the American people. And more importantly, in this process, if you have any hopes of trying to persuade the other party to join with you, which after all is necessary in order to remove the president from office in the United States Senate, you're not going to get there by making an argument, aha, we got you on obstruction of justice. You didn't give us that document from the State Department. You know, please. We got more important things to worry about. That's not one of them. But what about uh, prohibiting witnesses from testifying? I mean, we're not talking about handing over documents. We're talking about saying to people, you cannot appear. Well, sure. And, and the reason for that is because the internal discussions at the highest level within the White House are subject to privilege. And it has long been recognized uh, to be the case 
Uh, it's implied essentially in the Constitution by virtue of separation of powers, and the president has no obligation to try to make the House's case for impeachment against him. Uh, he has constitutional rights as well, in addition to the, the fact of, of his office. And I, I do think that, uh, again, uh, pushing that too far is, is encroaching on an area uh, that is long recognized to be a, 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 a proper separation of powers question and and the related notion that is expressed most recently by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, that the president has some obligation to come forward and testify or explain or provide his people. Um, again, um, that's that there, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires that. I don't think that's in the public interest. And again, I think that the president is entitled to rely on aides without having to worry about the fact that all of those people are going to appear to testify against him because the Congress is con conducting an impeachment inquiry. And if we really have reached the point in this country for the future, which is one of the things that I'm concerned about, that it simply is the result of having the House of Representatives in the uh, in the hands of the opposite party that we're going to now be endlessly in a situation in which every administration is going to be saddled with the potential of an impeachment inquiry. I do not think ultimately that that is in the country's best interest. I don't think that that's what the founders intended. And the you know recent history suggests now that we sort of string together, you know, Nixon to, to Clinton to Trump, you know, the question one has to logically ask, and I think most fair-minded Americans will be asking when this, when and if this gets to the United States Senate, is ultimately, is that what we want to see here? Is that really in the country's interest? And I've even thought about things like, you know, I wonder for the future whether or not a simple majority vote in the House should be sufficient uh, to warrant the impeachment of a president. I mean, I think there perhaps should be some serious question that a bipartisan vote be required in the House before it ever gets to the Senate, not suggesting that it would be a two-thirds majority, but one, you know, I think could think seriously about whether or not it's in the country's interest for the future to prevent just this sort of thing from happening, that 60 percent rather than 50 percent be required, which would, would mandate, in effect, that you would have to have in a, a, an example like this one, not only all Democrats in favor of impeachment, but you'd have to have bipartisan support, meaning some Republicans to join along with it. So you think there's some legitimacy to President Trump's contention, this is a kangaroo court. He's kind of dismissed the whole process. He said, you know, on Fox News, they say it's a shift show, you know. I look, I hear all that. I've been on Fox News. I'm, I'm a regular guest. Um, I, I do not think it, it, it helps anybody or our institutions in the country's best interest to be disparaging the mission of the House of Representatives. I don't, and I won't do it. Um, you know, they have a, a tough job to do. Are, are, is there partisan excess on both sides? Sure. Did anybody think that that wouldn't be the case? go all the way back to Alexander Hamilton. He certainly recognized that this would inflame partisan passions on both sides as a result of impeachment, particularly involving a president, which is why the protection was built in that it would require uh, two-thirds in the Senate to actually remove a president from office and overturn an election. While it is you know, undeniably true that a president is subject to impeachment all during his term in office, this obviously was intended by the founders to be an extraordinary thing and, and reserved for the most extreme situations. My view is that there's not ever going to be, given these facts, unless something magically changes, clear and unmistakable evidence of both a crime that fits the definition of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, and 
uh, one sufficient enough that uh, it constitutes uh, abuse of the president's office. And I do firmly believe, based upon history and practice, and frankly, good common sense, uh, which is ultimately where the American people are going to weigh in here, I, I think that unless you have both, that's not sufficient to warrant the removal of a president from office. I think that's the considered judgment of history. And the idea that Sondland put forth in his testimony that everyone was in the loop from Mike Pence to Mike Pompeo, um, not that significant in your view? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what in the loop. I, I listened to it carefully to see what exactly do you mean by in the loop and how much knowledge did they really have. I think that it is a reflection of the fact that Ambassador Sondland thought, based upon the direction given by the president, that this contention, which is frankly contrary to what you heard the day before um, from Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, um, you know, when the president directs that and wants something done, um, that makes it not an outside channel. That is the president's prerogative to choose the channel that he would like in order to show accomplish what it is he's trying to accomplish. Frankly, what I thought I saw here was the president was prepared to temporarily withhold foreign aid to see what the Ukrainians would do. He didn't make a demand that they commence investigations in exchange for that aid. That's not the tenor of the call, which is going to be ultimately the best, probably and only real evidence of the president's intent, other than the limited color that um, Ambassador Sondland was able to add today. I don't think you're going to hear from anybody else. I think to answer your question, yes, would there be potential benefit to hear from um, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, um, from, the, uh, from the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and, and potentially other people, Rudy Giuliani among them? Sure. Uh, but I think there's understandably a concern that the president is asserting and I think in most situations it should be respected, that unless you're prepared to say that these people were co-conspirators in connection with the illegal activity, which I don't think you're going to hear anybody say, no one's going to stand up and say, you know, I was involved in a, in a corrupt bargain here, and I was a co-conspirator, and now let me tell you what it is I did and what the president thought. That's the difference between, frankly, this case and the impeachment of Richard Nixon. No one's going to say, oh, yeah, I was, uh, yep, I was, we were all, we were all involved and we were all involved in a conspiracy to commit bribery. You're not going to hear that. Uh, you're not going to hear an acknowledgement that they thought w that what they were doing was illegal because I don't think they thought what they were doing was illegal. Do you believe that any Republican senators will change their minds after today's testimony or do you think they'll still feel supportive of the president minus the two who seem to be wobbly or have said otherwise? I think to be careful, honestly, you don't know, right, until after for both there's a vote in the House and you see what the, the partisan lineup looks like. I expect, I think the import of your question is I expect that it will be probably entirely along party lines. I think that will send a message to the Senate, which is likely to have a rejoinder that is going to be equally partisan the other way. So I guess that's a sort of a roundabout way of answering your question, at least at the moment. I don't expect that that's going to change the result. And I think what that will mean um, is that it will, um, it, will, it will not succeed in the Senate. I guess the only question is how long and painful will that process be? Will there be a full trial? I mean, this is different than our most recent history, which is the Clinton impeachment in this situation. 
the, the president's party is in control of the United States Senate. So they, they, they set the rules and they determine how much of a proceeding there, there will be. Uh, they may, I have suggested that if, if really uh, this should be uh, short-circuited because it doesn't have merit, that it would be appropriate to consider a motion to dismiss, which could be, and I understand that there are political consequences to this, particularly among Republicans in districts where, uh, or I'm sorry, in states where they're up for re-election this year, um, I can think of a few of them that would be vulnerable uh, to a process that was arguably curtailed in the Senate. But I mean, it, it, it certainly it was. There was a mo- put it this way: there was a motion filed during the Clinton impeachment to dismiss. It was denied. This situation is different because Republicans control the, the president's party, control the United States Senate, and so if they have a majority vote, um, plus in the event of a tie, the vice president to vote, they can they can move to dismiss for indefinitely injur- adjourn the proceedings. And do you think that might happen? I think that's a politically dicey thing. I think the safer course is probably to allow there to be a trial uh, and and to, for the members to give considered judgment to the question. And I think you- most people want to appear to their constituents as having carefully considered this to the extent that you were to short circuit it I suppose there'd be a reasonable argument about you're not taking it seriously so enough. So a backlash from democratic opponents in upcoming elections and, or and from look, democrat right. from voters. And you know look we are undeniably we're in an election year now right and, and a third of the senate is up so that's obviously something that they have to keep an eye on. And that brings me to my final question. What impact do you think, Bob, this will have on 2020? Could this embolden the president, help him, in fact, get reelected if it is along party lines? Or do you think that people will think he just uh, behaved? There was a serious error in judgment and his actions were questionable at, at, at the very least. I don't know too many things, but what I do know from having reviewed the history of all of the impeachments is that they have consequence, whether intended or unintended. And sometimes those consequences can be quite severe. We really don't know how the electorate will view this at the end of the day. I think there's a reasonable question as a result of so much of what has surfaced. Whatever you think the merit of it is, is that I think already this is seriously damaged the vice president's prospects to become the nominee for the Democratic Party. I, I don't think you can really argue to the contrary. Do you um, think it's that or do you think there are other factors? There may be there may be other factors. And of course we don't ultimately don't know if he became the nominee, how what the long, you know, run effect of that would be all the way through November of next year. We also don't even know in the primary process, you know, how this will play out. I suppose it depends on how this plays out before the United States Senate, presumably in January of next year. The short answer is one of the dangers of impeachment is that you go down this road, you never really know where it leads. I mean, I th- the, the fallout of the Clinton impeachment, I don't know that was an, an intended or unintended consequence, is that I think that probably cost Al Gore the election against George W. Bush. You know, you can talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that was one of the consequences, I think, of impeachment. It, were there other factors? Sure. But I don't think that that was an insubstantial factor. I think that was a significant effect. I don't know that that would have been anticipated at the time of impeachment. Only You would only know that with the benefit of, of history. And I think the same will be true here. We're not really going to know all of the consequences of an impeachment until probably years later. One thing is certain, only time will tell. Right, like a lot of things in life, but this is a big one, right? This, this is a big one.
Well, it's really interesting to get your perspective, Bob Ray. Thank you so much for stopping by. Katie, thanks very much for having me. Talking to us. A real pleasure. Yeah, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Same here. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of Next Question. We hope we've provided you with some information and some context so you can better understand what's going on these days on Capitol Hill with the impeachment hearings and what constitutes or doesn't high crimes and misdemeanors. If you'd like to know what's happening every morning and have some original content in the form of interviews and inspiring stories, please sign up for our daily morning newsletter called Wake Up Call by going to katiecurric.com. And follow me, of course, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Lauren Bright-Pacheco, Julie Douglas, and Tyler Klang. Our show producers are Beth Ann Macaluso and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. Associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing is by Dylan Fagan, Derek Clements, and Lowell Berlanti. Our researcher is Barbara Keene. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecouric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecouric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.